0: Welcome to Disputes Digest. Today is October 7th, 2021. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the world of international dispute resolution. This week, let's just jump right into it with the news. We begin this week in Mexico as the Mexican president announces significant constitutional reforms affecting the energy sector. President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador Submitted to the Mexican Congress a bill to amend Articles 25, 27, and 28 of the Mexican Constitution related to energy matters and seeking to undo the existence of a private market for the private investment in the energy sector. These changes also affect the hydrocarbons and mining industries. Some of the key changes in the bills include a cancellation of all power generation permits and power purchase agreements entered into with the private sector, as well as a cancellation of all clean energy certifications. Also a strengthening of the Comisión Federal de Electricidad, or CFE, including greater funding and a shift in the control of hierarchy for regulatory agencies. There is also a dissolution of certain other regulators to more streamlined and more simplified regulation and monitoring processes. And finally, there's the nationalization of the country's lithium deposits, which disallows further concessions and exploring of mining and minerals by private parties. Collectively, these changes will have a massive impact on the energy sector in Mexico and may give rise to legal claims from affected investors and parties. Certainly a story to watch. Then, for this next story, we head north to California. Over two decades ago, the California Supreme Court held that contracts that have a purpose of waiving all of the plaintiff's rights to seek public injunctive relief in both court and arbitration are unenforceable. Since then, both California and federal courts have scrutinized arbitration agreements that attempt to curtail the ability of public injunctive relief through the implementation of certain contractual mechanisms. The Ninth Circuit, however, has recently helped reconcile this tension by holding that public injunctive relief may be pursued on an individual basis. Which brings us to the case that we're looking at this week, which is DiCarlo versus Moneylion. In this case, Moneylion is a smartphone app developer that offered financial services to consumers through its PLUS membership program. PLUS members were required to sign a membership agreement which explained the members' obligations to make monthly payments. The agreement included an arbitration provision that prohibited the claimants from engaging in both class action and joinder claims and from acting as private attorneys general, but allowed the arbitrator to award all remedies available in an individual lawsuit, including injunctive relief. Then plaintiff, after falling behind on her fee deposits on monthly loan payments, plaintiff sought to cancel her membership, but Moneyline refused to cancel her account until plaintiff paid off all of her outstanding loan payments which were also accruing interest fees. Plaintiff filed a lawsuit alleging that the refusal was a high-tech debt trap, but the court dismissed the case pursuant to the arbitration provision. Tenacious as ever, the plaintiff appealed the dismissal, arguing that the arbitration clause was invalid because it improperly barred an individual's right to seek a public injunctive relief. On appeal, the court also did not buy this argument and found that consumers can, in fact, obtain public injunctive relief even in individual lawsuits. And as such, businesses and practitioners can rest easy knowing that arbitration agreements containing class or collection waivers, joinder waivers, and or private attorney general waivers are likely to be valid under California law, forcing consumers to seek remedy from private tribunals. Then, let's hop across the globe to Hong Kong, where a court has ruled on a matter that it described as, quote, highly unusual. An arbitral award was held to be manifestly invalid. The award in question contained findings that were inconsistent with the findings made in an earlier award, and on the same issues, and in a parallel arbitration proceeding between the same parties. Material to the court's decision was that there was a common arbitrator in the two sets of arbitral proceedings, and who had made contradictory findings failed to deal with or explain the inconsistency, and failed to give the parties an opportunity to be heard before making the inconsistent findings against them. We'll attach an article that provides a deeper dive on the facts and background, but here are a few quick takeaways from the decision. First, parties may wish to mitigate the risk and inconsistencies arising from parallel proceedings involving the same parties by, first, including an appropriate joinder and consolidation mechanism in their contracts, two, adopting a set of rules that provide for such a procedure, for example, the 2018 HKIAC administered rules, contain detailed rules and procedures for joining additional parties to an existing arbitration, consolidating proceedings. And commencing them into a single arbitration under multiple contracts and ordering the arbitral proceedings to be heard concurrently and consecutively and also finally third they can expressly opt into section 2 schedule 2 of the arbitration ordinance in hong kong which similarly empowers the hong kong courts to order two or more arbitral proceedings to be consolidated or to run concurrently or consecutively upon the application by a party to the arbitral proceedings While Hong Kong courts are known for their pro-enforcement approach in arbitration, when an award is deemed to be manifestly invalid and refusing enforcement is essential to protect the principles of fairness and due process, Hong Kong courts appear willing to take action. Alright, we'll stop there for the news this week because we have a very special conversation to feature with one of our recent authors from the Juice Mundi in London VApp blog, Bianca Vasilake. You'll want to stay around after we do events because you won't want to miss this conversation. Alright, but first, let's do opportunities and events. Taking a look at opportunities for this week, there's some interesting ones that you might want to take note of. First off, the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, out of the World Bank based in Washington, D.C., is seeking a legal counsel for a three-year duration term. The ideal candidate should have five years of experience in the international dispute resolution field. Details on the position are available on the ICSID website. Then let's hop over to Singapore, where an international firm, Sidley Austin LLP, is seeking two international arbitration associates for its Singapore-based offices. The ideal candidate should have one to five years of post-qualification experience with a U.S., U.K., or Singapore qualification. Also in Asia, the Asian International Arbitration Center seeks a case counsel to join its Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia-based offices. Then, heading over to Australia, where law firm King, Wood & Malisons is seeking a dispute resolution associate to join its international arbitration team based in its Sydney offices. Finally, we'll end the globetrotting for the week in the UK, where global accounting firm PricewaterhouseCooper, PwC, is seeking a professional to join its forensics disputes team dealing with international arbitration-related matters as a senior manager in its London offices. The ideal candidate should have experience drafting and preparing expert reports and be able to assist with calculating damages. Interested persons are encouraged to get in touch on the firm's website. And one more special event before we get out of here this week. Are you keen to make a contribution to hashtag cybersecurity and hashtag data protection in the field of international arbitration and ADR? Join the multidisciplinary team over at CyberArb. If you answered all of these questions with a yes, then you should take a moment to consider applying for the multidisciplinary international volunteering team of arbitration lawyers and cybersecurity professionals that wanna make a global impact. This team is over at CyberArb, and here are just a few benefits of joining the team. You'll learn why cybersecurity is a problem in international arbitration. You'll receive tips and insights from actual cybersecurity experts. You'll organize and take part in training sessions and e-conferences. You'll produce practical material and articles to contribute to the current debate in the field, and you'll expand your network and get to know people interested in tech and arbitration. You can head over to cyberarb.com to find out more or how to get involved, and they are accepting a CV and a motivational letter until October 15th. Any questions that you have for the organization can be sent to info at cyberarb.com. Upskill your cybersecurity knowledge. All right, let's head over to events. We start this week in Buenos Aires on October 12th, as the International Chamber of Commerce offers an event titled, Launch of the ICC Center of Entrepreneurship in Buenos Aires, where the ICC is working to prepare and mobilize the next generation of entrepreneurs in Southern Latin America, as they introduce Center Entrepreneurship in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The Center of Entrepreneurship, COE, in partnership with the Cámara Argentina de Comercio y Servicios working together to prepare and mobilize the next generation by developing the skills of young people who face uncertain employment prospects and creating a catalyst of local entrepreneurship and jobs of the future. The organizer's primary goal is to enable individual citizens to build meaningful livelihoods and to ensure they do this in a functioning market economy. We'll include a link in the show notes. Next, and staying right here with the ICC, the ICC is offering another event titled Introductions to the ICC Central Asia Initiative on October 18th. The organizers write, as part of the ICC's mission to make the business world work for everyone every day and everywhere, the ICC is expanding the global institutions reach and impact in subregions of the world in support of efforts to build and help with post-pandemic economic systems so that they are stronger and more resilient and more equitable. This event will provide a general overview of the ICC's mission to facilitate the development of a range of tools to promote business and trade in countries like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Krizak Republic, Turkmenistan and Tajikistan in an effort to establish a more viable ICC presence in the region. Up next and finally for events this week, we have World Arbitration Update or WAU. Wow. The WOW initiative strives for the decentralization of international arbitration beyond the traditional arbitration venues. Connecting into an integrated forum, less traditional arbitral venues from Africa to the Americas, Asia, Europe, and Oceania, WOW will update the global community on key and novel topics of investment in international commercial arbitration and public international law. This will be the first WoW, and it will consist of 15 sessions of networking virtual events. Each day will focus on different geographical regions, with three panel discussions scheduled at the time zone for that region. WoW panels will follow a dynamic format where a presenter will first provide an update of the issue that the panel will discuss, including relevant treaties and international customary norms, as well as case law. Panelists will then follow their comments and analytical perspectives. The event kicks off on October 11th and goes until October 15th and will be conducted virtually and cover a wide variety of topics. Okay, that's it for Disputes Digest. But wait, don't go anywhere. Don't touch that dial. As we said just a few moments ago, we also have one more thing to do, as we will every month. We will bring to you another session of Ask the Author, our collaborative event between Tales of the Tribunal, Juice Mundi and the London Very Young Arbitration Practitioners. And we'll be right back after this. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal's Disputes Digest, brought to you by Meet the Author, a partnership with Jus Mundi and the London Very Young Arbitration Practitioners. With me today, we have a very special guest, Ms. Bianca Vasilaki, who is going to talk to you about a piece that she has authored on the infamous UCOS case. If you don't know about UCOS, you're about to learn a little bit about it. For those of you that don't know, um, when I was a a wee, a young lawyer, a law student, the UCOS was just being decided and it was the talk of the town and it was the discussion point for my investor state dispute resolution professor. But enough about that, we're not here to talk about my staff in law, we're here to talk about Bianca. So Bianca, welcome to the show, glad to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me, I'm very excited to be here.
0: Great. Well, Bianca, just like we do during uh, the main series of shows, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know?
1: Well, that's a very loaded question, but uh, I'll keep it simple. Uh, So my my name is Bianca. I am from Romania, from a city called Yash, which, funnily enough, is the former capital of Romania few people know this. Um, I came to the UK when I was 19 with a dream of becoming a lawyer. Uh, I uh, I studied law at King's College London, had a great time. And uh, then I, I did the typical thing, you know, I did a few internships, a few vacation schemes. And I thought that I actually did enjoy um, working as a solicitor. So fortunately, Alan and Overy was kind enough to take me in. Uh, so I did my training contract, uh, for a couple of years and then I qualified a year and a half ago. And yeah. And since then I've been, um, an associate in the international arbitration team in London at Allen and Overy. And, uh, yeah, it's been a great time. So, uh, in a nutshell, this is who I am, where I'm from and the the basics that, uh, (laughs) of my LinkedIn profile, should I say.
0: Well, look, and taking, a, at least scrolling down a little bit further on that virtual, that imaginative LinkedIn profile, um, what got you started on the path of the lawyer? Did you know that you always wanted to practice international arbitration? Did you see like a vision of international <laughs> arbitration? What this that?
1: Yes, I mean, international arbitration is um, a topic that's often spoken about in Romania, and I thought this is it. Um, I'm kidding, of course. So I actually I wanted to be a doctor, a neurosurgeon for a really, really long time. And uh, then I went uh, to the European Parliament. Uh, on this you know European project that you do in high school and there we had to debate certain issues about immigration and some other some other stuff and uh, I quite like that you know I quite like debating public speaking so then when I returned uh, to Romania I kind of just got more and more involved in model united nations debating competitions and uh, then I went on a summer camp where you kind of you simulated what studying law would be like. And uh, I loved it. So uh, that was my path into law. I dished medicine. I was like, my true calling is to argue with people for a living. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved law school. I loved meeting. And uh, one of the modules I happened to do was international commercial arbitration. Uh, I had a wonderful teacher, uh, Florian Grizel, And I think that's when my interest started. And then after that, I pretty much was set on doing a seat in international arbitration to see what it would be like to actually practice it. And uh, I did get the opportunity to do that. It was my third seat during the training contract. And um, I, I loved it. I mean, you know, my favorite part was really strategizing about the case and figuring out how to break down the other side's arguments and, you know, digging through the exhibits to find like that all that detective work. Um, so yeah, and this is this is how I got to arbitration. It was a longer process, but I think it was worth it because I knew it was the right choice for me by
0: the end of it. Okay, and then among that, that, that backstory of commercial arbitration now, do you have a, an area of specialty or anything that in particular that you focus in?
1: So as I mentioned, I only qualified a year and a half ago. So I think I'm at that point in my career where I'm trying to get as broad of an experience as possible so that I can figure out which area I want to specialize in. So at the moment, I mainly do investment treaty arbitration and uh, international commercial arbitration. But I also dabble in a little bit of litigation because you have this option at AO. you know, if you express an interest, they will let you get on a case to see what it's like. Um, and trying to see as many industries as possible as well, because the cases are very different. Um, so not yet a very particular specialism, just trying to get that experience right now.
0: Sure, sure. Well, look, um, that that is extremely interesting. And, and And just as interesting is this piece that you've authored. The Yuko Saga, making sense of the English rules on stay of enforcement and security. Don't say that three times fast. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I tried to make it shorter, but, uh, you know, it was uh, the judgment covered two two big grounds. So uh, I had I had right. to put all these words in the title.
0: When in doubt, just make your title a sentence. That is true. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I should have just said the Yuko Saga, the English episode or something. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: It's very Star Wars. It makes you think of something epic, like Luke Skywalker could be involved somehow. Um, but I, I, I digress. That, that's
1: how you draw the readers in, you know.
0: That, that is true. Um, Bianca, can you tell us a little bit about this piece? What you know, what is it about, and what were you trying to get at here?
1: Yes, sure. So um, I don't know how much our listeners will know about the Yukos case. Um, this was a massive arbitration uh, initiated by the uh, shareholders of a Russian company um, that was sold essentially for peanuts and what they got was over 50 billion. In damages, and that was back in 2014, after about nine years of uh, arbitrating. Um, so after that, obviously, this was a huge award. So the defendant in this case, Russia, uh, inevitably challenged it. Uh, in the Dutch courts, which was the seat of arbitration, but at the same time, the claimants did want to enforce it uh, and get their money, you know, even though there were there was a challenge ongoing. So one of these enforcement attempts was in England and Wales, and uh, but at the time, the court, the English courts, essentially said that listen, because there is a challenge ongoing in the Dutch courts we are going to stay the enforcement proceedings in the English courts. And uh, whenever, you know, you get the result from the Hague Court of Appeal, then we can reconsider this decision. Um, so I don't know, again, how much you know about this, but the uh, District Court and the Hague decided that uh, the award should be set aside. And then the Court of Appeal reverted it and said that the award should be upheld. In light of this decision, the claimants came back to the English courts. They said, hey, guys, uh, here is the Court of Appeal judgment. It is in our favor. So can we please proceed with enforcement? Um, The defendant, Russia, of course, disagreed and said that, well, you know, we're going to appeal to the Dutch Supreme Court. Uh, We got the approval to appeal. So actually, you should continue to stay enforcement and also this should be without. Uh, requesting security. Um, And uh, yeah, and we got the the decision in that case. Uh, Spoiler alert. Um the English court sided with the defendant in uh, saying that well, the stay will be continued until we hear what the Dutch court says, including any kind of referral to the Court of Justice of the European Union, any referral back to the Hay Court of Appeals. So essentially they want to wait for the whole challenge to actually finish, and this will be done without requesting security from the defendant. So I think this is this high court decision in a nutshell.
0: Sure, no, and thank you for providing that summary along with uh, the, the commentary for those of us that aren't, haven't read UCOS in a while or not the most familiar with uh, the goings on in it. Um, before digging into a little bit more, a, a very just pragmatic uh, question, what inspired you to, to write about this case in particular? What, what drew it to, drew this point to you?
1: Um, In 2014, when I uh, finished high school, I saw this decision and I followed it ever since. Uh, I'm joking. It was, (laughs) it was pretty, it's a very, it's a very, I I didn't actually know much about the UCOS decision before I wrote this article, but uh, when I started in arbitration, I had this personal goal that I wanted to write an article on a topic in arbitration once a year and have it published in an arbitration publication. Um, obviously, I'm very junior, so these opportunities are not as many, but uh, I got the newsletter from London VUP um, and its collaboration with Just Mindy. The email said here are three cases. Does anyone want to write about them and have them in Jusmundi? I chose UCOS because I know it's a seminal case in arbitration, even though at the time I didn't know much about it. I did know that it is if it is the biggest arbitration award. Um, So I thought this is a good opportunity to one, learn more about an important arbitration case. And two, um, get to grips with this English, with this interesting English court judgment on state of enforcement and three, meet my goal for the year of publishing that one article, especially since it was going to be in just day.
0: Hey, with months to spare, no less.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, you know, get there uh, nice and early.
0: Well, and you know, on that point, uh, Bianca, are there, what 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 are you thinking about writing about next? I mean, maybe I'm asking you too early for 2022, um, <laughs> but what other topics are, are of interest?
1: I think, so at the moment, I don't really, have anything in mind? To be honest, I think I will do the same thing I did this past year, which is see what opportunities come up from different organizations for young arbitration practitioners, as well as within my firm. And when I see a case or an area that piques my interest, I'll start doing the research and writing an article. Um, I think that's how I'm going to approach it. Um, I'll also talk to a few of the more senior colleagues, see if they have, you know, any topics in mind that they might want help with on and kind of take it from there. Just trying to be flexible so that I have as broad of a range as possible. And I can, um, you know, I can hit that goal.
0: Sure. And well, you know, before we, we kind of step away from, from your piece in particular, what, you know, for the audience listening at home, what would be the main takeaways or the, the things that you would want uh, the readers to really sort of take away or gather from your piece?
1: Um, so first off, Yukos uh, is a very important case that you should definitely follow, especially because uh, the Dutch Supreme Court decision was due to come out in September and has now been pushed to November. And after mm-hmm. that, it will inevitably be followed by a lot of enforcement actions. So I think that if you're passionate about arbitration, if you're practicing in this field, it's a good case to follow, especially to see, fine, you get this award for a big amount of money, but how do you actually get that money? What is the process to get there? Because the award is just ultimately a piece of paper, right? Or a PDF these days. Um, (laughs) So I, I definitely think that is a key point they should follow. The English proceedings are just one example of many. Um, and then the second thing is really the High Court analysis on the stay of enforcement and arbitral awards. So the, the court did a very detailed analysis of 10 factors, and five were in favor of continuing the stay and five were in favor of lifting. This day. And it was very interesting to see what factors the court thought more were more important than others. And uh, when it comes to being an arbitration practitioner, thinking about enforcement proceedings, I think it's important to have that balance in mind, in the way the court did it and compare it with other precedents. So probably these two points, follow this case, it's really important. It's going, you're going to have a lot of interesting decisions on it. And secondly, uh, check out the analysis um that the high court did to continue the stay, which is perfectly cool. summarized in my article of course
0: <laughs> <laughs> which you'll have to read check out on yes U20. which
1: you will have to read <laughs> please do exactly. read it
0: yeah yeah we don't want to give any spoilers here um, bianca stepping away from your article for just a moment um and and, and back to some more uh, high level topics a little bit of a speed round actually as we go into the oh. last minutes that we have together How about books? Um, What are you reading right now? Is there anything on your bookshelf? Uh,
1: Yes, many books, some of them waiting to be read. But kidding aside, uh, I just finished uh, this book about Angela Merkel because I wanted she's one of the politicians that I find very interesting. I followed her career. So I wanted to read a biography of hers before she steps out of office. Um, And after this uh, very exciting reading and uh, I thought I should go for something a bit lighter. So so now I'm reading uh, Half of a Yellow Sun um, by uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adikie who is a A Nigerian author and she writes about three stories during the Nigerian civil war, um, which I I, I really love it. Uh, I I read Americana and Purple Hibiscus, which are two of her other books and absolutely love them. So I had to get this one as well.
0: Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of light reading. Yeah. Very good. Um. I, I
1: do like, I used to do a lot of reading in high school, you know, and then I, I went to uni and when you do law, you read so much for your course that when yeah. I was relaxing, I didn't feel like reading again. Um, but then I realized that I hadn't, I was reading like one book per year over the Christmas break um, and I wanted to change that. So now I'm, I joined the book club. And uh, we also pick a book every month. And then I try to read another book um, in my spare time as well.
0: Sure, and this one kind of, maybe kind of nicely dovetails into the end of that answer. Um, I imagine reading probably is one of these things, but how do you balance, or how do you find, what what sort of activities do you do to maintain your physical and mental health during these times, especially in the age of COVID when we're not uh, seeing people as much as we might have beforehand?
1: Uh yes um well I have to say I'm I love meeting up with my friends and going to restaurants and exhibitions and the theater and just going out so I've uh, I've I've really felt I've really felt it not not being able to do that but I do try so I love movies and TV shows so I always try when I come back from work for an hour to like watch one episode of something, read 10 pages of my book, do something uh, like that that I really love. I also love doing jigsaw puzzles and Legos. Uh, I find it quite therapeutic and I, I love just figuring out how they're supposed to come together. So I tend to do that at the weekend as well. Um, and then of course, you know, you have to maintain the physical health, um, especially with being mostly at home and not being as active as we used to be. So um I have a personal trainer uh that makes sure that I do work out because if we leave it up to me, I obviously would not be going to the gym. But when I have someone else holding me accountable, I'm like, well, they made time in their schedule, I can't disappoint them. Um, <laughs> so I think these are these are some activities and of course, you know, Skyping with friends and when I can um, actually meeting with them.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, last couple of questions. Um, if you were approached by a current student or another recent graduate or someone looking to break into uh, your field, what advice would you give them um, on how to do that?
1: Um, so I think, well, it depends where they're from, right? So I'm going to answer this for those applicants, I think in England, uh, because the process is very different depending on where you are in the world. Um, and I don't know much about other countries, but in England, uh, even if you are set on becoming an arbitration lawyer, you still need to do a tier training contract where you go through four different areas of law, six months in each. So I think my advice would first off, do a few vacation schemes to figure out whether this is the profession you actually want to practice because the training contract is two years and if you don't like it, it can be quite difficult. So get the experience, listen to all those great podcasts, go to all the networking events and workshops that law firms organize to figure out, you know, how to write a good application and do those vacation schemes because they're amazing insights and sometimes, well, oftentimes they're an eye-opener and afterwards, keep an open mind during a, during your training contract, because even if you think, oh, I really want to do arbitration, the training contract is an opportunity to discover maybe other areas of law as well. So I'd really encourage keeping an open mind and doing a wide range of departments, like do a transactional, do a disputes one, do a bit of pro bono, do a bit of legal tech, do a bit of everything. Uh, So that afterwards, if you do decide you want to do arbitration, you can give a very good explanation. You know, it's your department. Like, why do you want to qualify here? Well, I tried this and that. And I realized that I love arbitration because X, Y, Z. And I think proving that you have done your research and arbitration is not just a whim, but something that you're genuinely passionate about is the best way to get into the field.
0: No, I think that's a great answer. And I think that that's uh, some actionable and tangible advice for those from the UK. Um, Before we go here, Bianca, do you have any shout outs that you want to give?
1: Um, I'd like to thank my parents for uh, raising me. I'm kidding. It makes me think about the Oscars features, you know? Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, obviously I'm grateful to, uh, the entire ANO team, which has been incredibly supportive from the time when I was a trainee to now. And, uh, very encouraging of all my side projects because I have all these like podcasts and pro bono and legal tech. And every time I come up with a wacky idea, they, uh, they're always keen to support me in trying it. So uh, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, of course, I think um, Gulad Yasev, who was uh, my supervisor when I was a trainee. And one of the main reasons why I discovered that I really loved arbitration, um, and has helped guide me, you know, through this uh, path of being a qualified lawyer, um, ever since, but really, the whole team is great.
0: Oh, well, no, I think that's a, a solid slate of, of shout outs. And you mentioned it just a second ago, but um, how can people follow you or get in touch? I mean, you mentioned you have a podcast. Uh, what about that? You know, let us know.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think the first port of call is LinkedIn. Uh, that would be the easiest one. You know, just put my name in LinkedIn and you're going to find me there. And um, you can learn more about myself and the various projects. And on the podcast, this is especially for those people in the UK who want to get into law, I'm doing a graduate recruitment podcast with Alan & Overy, um, which is called uh, Alan & Overy's Launch, uh, the careers podcast. So if you put it into iTunes or Spotify or just you go to the NO graduate recruitment website, you'll be able to find
0: it. Oh, that's great. Okay, well look, Bianca, this time has zoomed by. Uh, Thank you so much for stopping by the studio.
1: If we were on Zoom, it would have been a great pun.
0: It would have been a great (laughs) pun. I I did that. It's the coding. you got to put all the messages together, the Zoom.
1: Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.
0: Of course. Her name is Bianca Vasilake, and her piece is The Yuko Saga, Making Sense of the English Rules on Stay of Enforcement and Security. And you have just met the author. We'll see you next time. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.